For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet a Tucson woman who's found purpose in politics. Learn about the history of Shakespeare's first folio. Visit the Gem and Mineral Show with Tucson John. And Beth Sertit has advice about getting along with loud desert neighbors like coyotes. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Dimolo. Stories of the Southwest is a community storytelling project about identity and culture. Every week, Sophia Paliza Carr asks a question that you can answer. This week, she asked about stereotypes. Here's the story of one woman who's defying expectations about Latinas and politics. It's 6 p.m. at the Tanque Verde swap meet on a Saturday, and things are just starting to come alive as the sun sets. A bunch of youths are under a tent handing out cookies and Play-Doh to passers-by, conversing with them in English or Spanish about getting registered to vote. Hey, are you guys citizens? This is Zyra Livier. My friends just call me Z. Z is a lot of things. She's a full-time neuroscience student, a bartender, a self-proclaimed downtown Tucsonan, a single mother of two kids. I was leaving the house the other day. Bye, Tate. He said, Mommy, you going to see the burn? <laughs> it's really cute. And she's also the founder of the grassroots coalition Latinas for Bernie, an explicitly brown, feminist, millennial, mother-friendly coalition in Tucson working to get Bernie Sanders elected. It's the first national Latina-focused grassroots organization for the Bernie Sanders campaign. It's a baby that's just growing into something that I would have never expected it to. Zyra didn't used to be interested in politics. Growing up in South Tucson, she actually wanted to stay out of the spotlight and close to home. Because as a child, she crossed the border illegally. You're basically scared. You're scared all the time. You don't want any attention to you. You know, every time we see a migra truck somewhere near our apartment, we just hide until it was gone. You're afraid unless you're at home. And as many of those from South Tucson know, you never leave there. I, I didn't even know there was a university in this town until I was in high school. That's how in a shell you are. When she was 12, Zyra became a permanent resident. And she is the first in her family to go to college. But there are unexpected challenges in pursuing the American dream. For one thing, crippling student debt. Was it worth it? Can, will I be able to buy a house? And, I, and when I originally set out th- this goal, I didn't think that that would have to be the choice eventually. I didn't think that me pursuing an education would end up being me being in debt for the rest of my life. So when she volunteered for the first time ever for the Bernie rally back in October, something clicked for her in his messages about free college and his own immigrant background. The rally was just a big transformation. Um, It just really just kind of lit a fire in my belly and I remember going home and uh, I threw something on Facebook about it. Just three months after posting that message, she plunged right in started a Facebook page and a grassroots coalition. In just a few months, Latinas for Bernie had gathered steam. 
They've hosted several registration events and have over 500 likes on Facebook. They do actually let in non-Latinas, but the name was carefully chosen. Zyra wanted to send a strong message that people like her, young women, Latinas, single moms, do have political strength. I mean, we're one of the marginalized groups, you know, uh, unmarried young women. And, and more so when you're a Latina. I can't tell you how many times I have people, even per week, speak down to me, like if I can't understand a well-formed sentence because I'm a small, brown, pretty woman. Even my own uh, raising. Hey, when are you gonna get married? Hey, when are you gonna get married? Hey, why don't you go to hair school and learn to cut hair, you know, and marry a nice guy? I mean, I can't tell you, e even my own family, how discouraging they were for me getting an education. So the idea of empowering our own community is why I chose that name. The conversation is starting with the young people and them bring it up with their families, and I think that's extraordinary to see. Pita Juarez, director of communications at the One Arizona Coalition, says it's Latino youth that are the entry point to engaging the larger Latino community, and that the numbers of registered voters are slowly rising, having almost tripled in the last 13 years. I think that when we, like as Latinos, you know, I, I have some of my, my tias and, and relatives that have just been, they've been residents here in Arizona for so long, and it's just, we've never really made it that important to become citizens and then go out to vote. But I think that now we're seeing that Latino people, they do have a voice. Zyra can't vote for Bernie yet. She's in the process of submitting paperwork for citizenship, but she does know how to activate people like her, knows her community. And she has a lot of plans about subverting the generalization that Latinos don't vote. Uh, we're also planning a uh, assembly for high school students. Do some fun assembly, get them some good food, uh, Latino and black speakers, teachers, musicians. Just get them excited and get them while they're young so that they can go home and get their families excited about this too. And for Zyra, it's about more than just finding her voice in this election. Instead of looking at med schools next December when she graduates, she's now browsing law schools. She hopes to turn Latinas for Bernie after the election into a nonprofit focused on engaging young women. It has changed my life in every way, shape, or form. I've always been a, a very outgoing person, but I never really had a focus. Um, so what it's done for me, it's really given me a home. I've never felt more at home than doing what I do now. I always knew I left to speak, but I never knew that others liked to listen to me. This is Dimelo Stories. Every week we ask and you answer. Learn how to participate by going to dimelostories.org. Dimelo is part of a national initiative called Finding America, presented in collaboration with AIR, the Association for Independence in Radio, supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In the year 1623, less than a decade after the death of William Shakespeare, the majority of his plays were published in a collected edition that became known as the First Folio. Today, fewer than 250 copies of that collection are known to exist. One of these original editions is on its way to the University of Arizona to play a central role in a public exhibition and celebration of Shakespeare's legacy.
I talked with Frederick Kiefer, a distinguished professor at the University of Arizona, who teaches Elizabethan and Jacobean drama. It was extremely unusual to publish a collected edition of playwrights' works. One reason for this was that plays were not seen as substantial. They didn't have the status that a work of history, for example, might have, or a work of philosophy. There was one predecessor, however, to Shakespeare's collected works, and it was the works of Benjamin Johnson, who, in the first folio, was tasked with the uh, job of celebrating Shakespeare's career. They must have known one another very well. When Johnson's works were published, it was a very controversial thing because no one had ever thought to gather together plays, mere entertainments. And not only that, but Johnson had the temerity to call his plays works, a title that had always previously been used for philosophic, historical, books of all kinds. That gave a kind of precedent to Shakespeare's two fellow actors to collect the plays and publish them in one volume. Up to this point, had there been discrepancies in various versions of the plays? For instance, if you went to see a production in one town, might they be using a different uh, script than in another before the first folio came out? You know, this is one of the things that occupies Shakespearean editors to this day, and it remains a highly controversial area. For example, let's take a play that almost everyone knows, Hamlet. It was first published in what's called a quarto, that is to say, basically a paperback book, and that version has 2,154 lines. That was published in 1603, and the next year, a second version of Hamlet was published. The second quarto is 79% longer. It has about 3,764 lines. That's substantial. So you have two versions of Hamlet, both published during Shakespeare's career, and they vary enormously. And when the folio came along, it gave still another form to these plays. The folio version of Hamlet is different from the quartos of Hamlet. Are all of Shakespeare's plays included in the folio? No. And if not, then what's missing? Well, that's an interesting question. Half of the plays that were published in the folio had never previously been published in any form at all. So if it were not for the folio, we would today be missing half of everything that Shakespeare wrote. We also know that his late play called Pericles, which he co-wrote with another dramatist, is not in the folio, and we are not sure why. Some people speculate it was because it was co-written. Another play he wrote, The Two Noble Kinsmen, at the end of his career, was also co-written with another dramatist named John Fletcher. It, too, never made it into the folio. We also have another play that we have records of called Love's Labors One. Now, that play is referred to twice in written documents in Shakespeare's day. That's pretty clear evidence that it existed. It would have been a companion to Love's Labors Lost. Which came first, Love's Labors won or lost? I wish I knew. (laughs) (laughs) And another play that Shakespeare probably had a hand in is A History of Edward III. 
It was not previously attributed to Shakespeare, but in the work that's been done in the last 20 years or so, scholars have come round to believing that most of this play is also by Shakespeare. Tell us about the first time that you personally got to study and uh, handle a copy of the first folio. I was a graduate student at Harvard, and uh, I was working in the rare book room, and I began to look at the folios, which I had never seen before and held in my own hand. And it was a thrill, because to confront the book that was published in 1623, you know, sometimes we think of old books as old, yellowed books that are where the pages are crinkled and uh, in bad condition. But what we have to remember is that the quality of the paper used in Shakespeare's time was of extraordinarily high quality. And those pages today are sometimes as white as they were the day they were printed. They haven't yellowed because the yellowing of old paper came in the 19th century when acid was used in the process of producing that paper. So these old books that you confront in a rare book library are in many cases in beautiful shape, just beautiful. It's a work of enormous cultural importance. And by that I mean it is probably the single most important work written in English and published in English ever. It has a cultural force because Shakespeare's works are read and performed in various languages all over the world. So when you go back to the folio, you're going back to the starting gate. You're going back to the beginning. Fred, what was your reaction when you heard that the University of Arizona was going to be hosting one of the first folios? Well, I was very pleased because this is my university. I have been here teaching since 1973. This is my home. So when I heard it was coming here, I was thrilled because I knew it would be the focus of a community-wide celebration. And as you may know, there are going to be celebrations involving families. Some of our undergraduates who are in the theater arts department will be putting on performances. There will be a program for people who um, are more specialized readers. Two of my colleagues at ASU are coming down, and the three of us are going to be talking about the three different versions of Hamlet. So there will be something for everyone on our campus. My guest was Frederick Kiefer, a Shakespearean scholar and a distinguished professor at the University of Arizona. Starting Monday, the first folio will be on display at the Arizona State Museum with a companion exhibit in special collections at the U of A Main Library. The folio will be in Tucson through March 15th, and Shakespearean events for all ages are planned throughout that time. Find a link for the schedule at firstfolio.arizona.com. Every year, the Tucson Gem Mineral and Fossil Showcase attracts visitors from around the world, and there are plenty of Arizonans who look forward to the event, like children anticipating Christmas. We'll spend some time with one avid gym show fan next in this edition of Under the Sun with Andrew Brown. Uh, so wait, what is this? This is a wind horse, a Tibetan wind horse. It's very light, but very big. <laughs> I like giant jewelry. Uh, one of my good friends told me years ago, and I kind of stuck with it, he said, 
It ain't jewelry unless you can see it from across the street. So I was like, okay, bigger, bigger, bigger. We're at my house. Everybody calls the mud hut. It's got you got a lot going on here. Yeah. <laughs> I've been going to gem show for 22 years. From necklaces hanging on my kitchen wall, I could probably put necklaces on about 130 people. Is this borderline hoarding? No, this is collecting. <laughs> Every year I buy a new ring. This year I haven't bought mine yet. Um, but I, I have my eye on a couple and we're going to look at one of them today and I might get it. Morning. How are you? I'm good. Good morning. Hello, beautiful. <laughs> okay, our first stop is the Grant Road Inn. It's at Grant and the freeway across from the Waffle House. Check it out. We're looking for big rings. Oh, all right. <laughs> I have lots of big rings. My name is Pema Lamongurung, and I'm Tibetan. When he saw my jewelry, he goes, wow, and he, he bought a bunch of big rings. Then next year again, he came every year. Then we become best friend. And every night we have a party. Remember, it's the time to disco <laughs> and we dance. This is terrible, but I was here the other day and I hid the ring that I was looking at inside some bracelets so no one else would buy it and it, it's still here. <laughs> it's so bad. But anyway, this is probably my ring for Tibet. The best thing about their jewelry, you know it's a good piece when you turn it over and the other side is just as beautiful on the back as the front. So this one has a deer carved into it and all this inlay. Um, now the price on this looks high, but these prices at the gem show are never the actual price. So what do you think? Does that qualify as a ring? It's a ring, look. <laughs> I can still text with this ring. <laughs> this is ridiculous. 125 for you. All right, well, I have to think about it still. I get paid tonight. I did get the ring. I negotiated. That's why cash is king, because you can just throw the cash and run. Awesome. <laughs> Look. Look at all this. Look at those huge crystals. Crystal spheres, globes, massage wands, <laughs> everything you can imagine. You wouldn't be able to see the entire gem show in the three-week time. It's just impossible, so you really have to make yourself goals. Right now we're at the River Park Inn, which is on the Frontage Road. And we're going to go ring shopping for another ring. It's a good show. Hey, nice ring, dude. Woohoo! Oh, check it out. All right. My name is Lou. Lou Guerin. Lou Guerin. You have this. Now, it's a little that? ring in your standard. Well, it's little. <laughs> uh, it's a bullfrog leather. And gold. Bullfrog leather, gold, yeah. and silver? Yeah. Right. Can you tell me what you think of John's rings? They're amazing, you know? It's, it's because um, over the top does not exist. Would you and care for a, a shot? If you buy a ring, you get a shot with Momo. This seems fair enough. Hi, I'm Momo. My <laughs> company is Mercurius Designs. Keith Richards would wear this stuff. Johnny Depp did wear this stuff. A lot of them can be described as king rings. Right now we're looking at a crystal cluster set in sterling silver that's towering above my finger and it kind of looks like Superman's house. Purple, blue, brown, red, looking at starfish, the snakes, squid, dragon cuffs, the stingray. Why rings? Why rings? Yeah. Well, I've traveled all over the world and when you're traveling on a budget with a backpack, there's really not a lot of room to buy a lot of bigger things. 
But jewelry, you can travel wearing 10 rings and it doesn't take any room in your bag. They feel good. It feels good to wear them. When I don't wear them, it feels strange. Look at me and how nice your rings are. And it's like, how nice your, your eyes are. And then before you know it, the rings are off. <laughs> Everybody likes shiny, pretty things, whether they admit it or not. My name is Mariella, I'm Italian, and I've been coming to Tucson since many years. Well, it's my favorite show, I have to say, in the world. I consider her rings and all of her jewelry, every single piece is a museum piece. Really good energy, lots of crystals, really great stones, amethyst, turquoise, like really good quality turquoise. That was really fun, it's always fun, and we just met, what? A British guy who lives in Indonesia, a French guy who lives in Indonesia, and an Italian woman, all in, I don't know, like a very short radius in one tent, a tiny drop in the bucket of what is the gem show. I'm Charisma Pedoli working with the ultimate thing in the Yes, I am Charisma Pedoli, the mystic scientist. You can feel it just really going in and vibrating. I kind of feel a little bit high in a good way, high on life. Because it's Shh, an the third eye, and yeah. it's connecting you. May God bless everyone. She just gave me a sound treatment with these crystal balls to, to raise my kundalini, and I actually could feel, I could feel like energy just shooting up my body and coming out. That was a great ending. I feel so good. That's awesome. That story was produced by Andrew Brown. See a slideshow of Tucson John and his favorite jewelry on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Author, artist, and writer Beth Serdit listens to ravens and is paddled with alligators in wild and scenic places. She also knows that any road can lead to adventure. Walking in the suburban desert, Coyote turns her head to look at me as our paths cross, then squats her fluffy self right in front of me and stares at me as she does her business, just in case I need a reminder of whose territory this is. Another day, another coyote, small, lanky, stands close, looking in through the glass door of my studio. We trade looks, and then he trots downhill into the dusky desert. I have come to think of the coyote who often crosses the arroyo near my house as my coyote, my night watchman, often illuminated by my headlights as I drive the road home. One Sunday morning, just before dawn, soon after I'd hugged my former partner goodbye and wished him a safe plane trip, he called and left a message. Hey, beautiful. Unfortunately, I'm like... 500 yards away from the house, and a coyote attacks my car. Right off the side of the road, just came right up my car. I hit him, and terrible noise, and I stopped oh, 10 yards later, 15 yards later, and he, he was yelping, but he was off in, in the brush. There's nothing I could do. Anyway, they hear this injured coyote around. He tangled with my car. I love you. Bye. I look up animal control phone numbers to take with me on my coyote hunt. The moon is still hanging around as I stand in the driveway. 
I look across the road at the neighbor's house. I know he has a gun, probably plural. Once I found out about the guns, I started avoiding him. But now I'm thinking, maybe he could come help. I mean, what else good is a gun for? It's not like I can go up to a wounded coyote, pick it up, put it in the car, and bring it to a vet, especially on Sunday. Or if it's really badly hurt, do I have what it takes to break its neck? Fur and muscle and bone twisting in my hands, pungent wet musk that I'll never be able to wash away. And is it okay to shoot a coyote? I guess so, since there are reprehensible killing contests run by gun shop owners who give assault weapons to the human who kills the most coyotes. Mm. For now, I'm on my own. At the incline where the accident happened, Raven perches atop a juniper tree, spreading his neck feathers and looking at me as I scan and listen for coyote, panting, whining in the sharp cut of the arroyo. I look for blood, but there isn't any. I hear a hawk calling, thrasher singing, small critters skittering, every sound except coyotes. God, I hope it's not my coyote. That night, I lie in bed listening to the neighborhood pack sing wild, triumphant songs that announce another little creature has died in those mouths. Yet another night, the clock letters on the dashboard glow 1.10 a.m. I like to drive on back roads really slowly with my car windows open to the night sounds and perfumes. I sense, more than see, a shape moving on my right. I stop, turn off the engine, leave the lights on, wait. A young coyote comes out of the brush, trots figure eights in front of the car. Headlight showing a dark stripe on a furry tail. Quiet, quiet, I tell myself, just as <coughs> sounds canter unbridled from my lips. Coyote Child comes a little closer, heading towards my kisses. There are so few humans worthy of trust. Best coyote learn that now. I turn off the lights, roll up the window, and watch Coyote meld into the night. Throughout February, an exhibition of Beth Serdit's illustrated nature stories called The Art of Paying Attention is at the Tucson Botanical Gardens in the Porterhouse Gallery. There's a link for information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.